If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians uh, chapter 1. Uh, tonight we'll uh, again be reading the first eight verses, and tonight uh, considering uh, verses, uh, verses 3 through 8. Colossians uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, just to uh, just to give you some some signposting as to to kind of where we'll where we'll be going uh, tonight, we're going to be going to be considering especially uh, verse five, uh, where Paul speaks of the hope laid up for you in heaven, and then also verse six about the gospel uh, constantly bearing fruit and increasing. So those are those are going to be kind of going to be the two main areas uh, on which we uh, spend our time this evening. So uh, we began last week uh, considering uh, this letter of Paul, and now we're going to look to this prayer of thanksgiving, which we find here in verses 3 through 8. He speaks in verse 3 that he gives thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for them, but why is, he, why is he giving thanks? What, what is it that is motivating him in this case? Interpreters are not all of one mind in this regard, but I would incline toward the opinion that the reason for his thanksgiving for them is what he says in verse 5 on account of the word because uh, that is there. He's, it is as if he said, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now on that reading and that understanding of the, uh, of the way the, the phrases pair together, then verse 4 would parenthetically insert the occasion for Paul's giving thanks and praying. Paul had heard that the good news uh, had come to Colossae, that men and women had received the gospel. Again, as we considered last week, this was not a church that Paul had personally planted he had not evangelized this area. He mentions the one who had evangelized them, Epaphras, there in verse 7, and he commends Epaphras to them there as a faithful servant of Christ, as a beloved fellow a bondservant. And in that way, he's making it clear that he and Epaphras are, are on the same team. They're proclaiming the same gospel. And that means then that in receiving the gospel from Epaphras, the Colossians had received the real gospel. They had received the same gospel that Paul proclaims. And therefore, since it was real and genuine, it needed no supplement, nothing extra to be added. And that 
Uh, I think as we'll see as we work through Colossians, that's helpful to Paul's argument that they had from the very beginning received the full and real gospel. They had no need for anything, uh, any teaching, any extra rules or anything to be added to it. And so, uh, at least for the most part, these were Christians whom he had never seen face to face, but nevertheless he had heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and the love which they had for all the saints. And he is even more explicit about that love down in verse 8 at the end of our passage when he mentions that Epaphras had told them I told excuse me, him about their love in the Spirit. The love which the Colossians had was, was genuine, and it was the work of the Holy Spirit within them. And so Paul had heard about their faith in Christ Jesus. He had heard about their love for all of the saints. He had heard that these people in Colossae were Christians. They had believed in Jesus Christ, received forgiveness of sins, and been justified. And now the fruit of the gospel, their brotherly love, was being evident. Paul said that they loved all the saints. All who had been sanctified in Jesus Christ were now the objects of their affection. This reminds us of the words of Jesus, right? By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, if you have love for for fellow Christians. And this mark was, was evident in them. He had heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for the saints. And so he knows that they are believers, and this provides him then the occasion for for giving thanks. And so he says that the reason he gives thanks, there in verse 5, is because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. And this is is important. This is important for us to see, that Paul is looking here beyond the horizons of this world. Paul is not merely joyful and thankful that these men and women have turned from a life devoted to the service of sin and that now they are devoted to the service of righteousness. Certainly he is glad, no doubt is thankful for that, but that's not so much what he's focusing on here. Likewise, he's not merely thankful that a church has been planted and that people are now gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ and that in the same proportion now the idolatrous temples and the brothels are that much more empty. Surely those are good things, and surely Paul is grateful to God for them. But what he explicitly mentions here is that he gives thanks for them because of the hope which is laid up for them in heaven. And when he speaks of the hope that is laid up for them, he's using the word hope as a kind of shorthand signifying the thing which is hoped for, namely their eternal heavenly inheritance with God through Christ. Now in this, let's, let's consider two things. First, in regard to hope, and second, in regard to the heavenly inheritance. The word hope signifies certainty or confident expectation concerning what will be. But it also signifies that the thing hoped for has not yet been received. And so Paul speaks in Romans 8, 24 and 25, And he says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. There is a certainty concerning what will be for us as believers in Christ, but there is also the fact that it has not been received yet. We might compare the situation to a will that has been made, a person having died and the estate 
not yet having been settled. And so, uh, for example, when my grandma died a couple of years ago, she had left something in her will to each of her grandchildren, and I was certain that what she had left to me was coming to me, but for a while, until the estate was settled, it was not in my full possession. It was not months down the road until the estate was settled that I received what my grandma had left to me. And the case is is similar with the heavenly reward of all who are in Christ. It belongs to us. It has been conferred upon us, but not fully conferred upon us, if we can speak in that way. Peter speaks of it like this in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so he says that we've been born again to this living hope to receive this inheritance which is reserved for us. It's, it's there. It's reserved for us. But we, in the meantime, are being protected by the power of God through faith for this salvation which is ready to be revealed in the last time. And Peter goes on in that very same chapter, 1 Peter 1.13. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, as Christians, we have already received grace. We have already received salvation. But thank God there is more that is coming our way. There is more that we will experience in the future. Our salvation is ready to be revealed in the end time. There is yet grace that is to be brought unto us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But even though we do not yet have it all in our possession... Nevertheless, it is certain, and thus Paul uses this word hope to designate the certainty of what is hoped for. He speaks of the hope which is laid up for us in heaven. There was one uh, writer from olden times who expressed it this way. He said, if anything be in reserve for us, even with a good and honest man, we entertain no doubt concerning its future recovery. Our goods are placed for that end with another through fear of their not being in safety with ourselves. When therefore the apostle calls the kingdom of heaven the hope laid up for us, he shows that the godly ought to entertain a certain attainment of eternal life because it is as a treasure kept in store for his children by God himself, their father. Just like uh, when I was a child, I remember I had bought something once, and as I was carrying it, I think I stuck it on my belt, and it, it fell off of my belt, and uh, we were at this, uh, it was, it was kind of like, like a fair, and we, it, was, it was nighttime, we, we retraced our steps, and, and we found it, and my father carried it the rest of the way for me. Like, it had, it had been kind of one of those things where I didn't have cash on me, and I, I, told, my, I told my dad, hey, you know, if you, if you buy this for me, I'll, I'll pay back when I, when I get home. And I was carrying it, and the deal was, if I was carrying it and I lost it, I still would have had to repay my dad. <laughs> and my dad said to me, he said, well, you know, if you, you know, 
when, when we found it, I, I gave it to him. He's like, if I lose it, you won't have to pay me back. And my dad kept it safe, right? And it's the same way with this eternal inheritance. It is certain because it's not us who is hanging on to it. It's God who is holding on to it for us. And so as Paul is giving thanks, he's looking beyond, again, the horizons of this life to the life which is to come. And in seeing the the blessedness that certainly awaited these Colossian believers, he gave thanks. And we, too, ought to be looking beyond our earthly horizons to our eternal inheritance. And not only for our sakes, but also for the sake and benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would venture to say that all of us, me included, ought to be thinking of this reality more than we do. Rejoicing in it, giving thanks for it, more than we do. If you think back to uh, the, the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10, 19 and 20, the, the, uh, the 70 had been out preaching, casting out demons and so forth, and they came back joyously reporting to Jesus what had happened. And Jesus said this to them, Luke 10, 19 and 20, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. They were to rejoice in their heavenly hope even more than spiritual advantages and victories which were given to them in this world. Certainly, they had spiritual advantages and victories. They had just seen and tasted it in their preaching ministry as Jesus had sent them out. But they were not to rejoice in those things so much as in the fact that their names were written in heaven. And this, too, is where we should be looking. This, too, is where our hope should be set. This, too, should be the reason for our rejoicing and the reason for which we give thanks for our fellow believers, that there is an eternal hope which is laid up for us in heaven with God. And having this perspective then will change the way that we look at the world, and it will be a change for good. Paul described it this way in 2 Corinthians four seventeen and 18, when he said, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul is is looking beyond the, the troubles of this world, and no doubt he had a lot of them. He talks about a lot of them in 2 Corinthians, but he said he's, he's looking beyond to the eternal reality, that the unseen things, these are the eternal things. And this too was, was Abraham's perspective. As we've been uh, hearing on Sunday mornings, he was looking for that city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And so let us then also fix our eyes on that inheritance And let us give thanks that it is laid up for us and also for all of the saints. Now, as Paul continues here in uh, verse 5, he says that they had heard of this hope laid up for them in heaven in the word of truth and the gospel that had come to them. The gospel that Epaphras had preached to them, had brought to them the tidings of eternal life that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And they had heard this gospel, the same gospel that you and I have heard and received ourselves. And then in verse 6, he elaborates on this gospel. He says that this gospel has come to you 
just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, in this we see Paul's perspective that the gospel had already in his day, gone out to a great extent, even by this time, a mere three decades or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He was willing to speak of it as having gone out into all the world. Now, I don't think this statement by any means means that the gospel had by that point gone to every tribe or every tongue or to every location, but nevertheless, from Paul's point of view, the gospel had already gone out to a great extent in the inhabited world. Certainly there was in Paul's day and still is in ours much to do in regard to evangelism and church planting and so forth, but even still the gospel had gone out into the world. Much had been accomplished in regard to the spread of the gospel even in those first few decades after the resurrection as the apostles went out in various places. We see, I think, only a glimpse of it in in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts we see mainly Peter, John, and Paul. We see James in Jerusalem. There were several other apostles who who went to various places and proclaimed the gospel. And here in verse 6, we also learn something about uh, the gospel itself, the nature of the gospel as it works in us as people. Paul speaks of this gospel as constantly bearing fruit and increasing, and he speaks of this phenomenon as taking place in the lives of Christians. In all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel spreads in the world, reaching more and more people, and so it increases in that way, but it also increases within us, bearing fruit. It bears fruit and increases in the lives of believers. And we see in this that the gospel is, is not a barren thing. When someone hears and understands the grace of God and truth, which is to say they they receive the gospel in faith, the word of truth then is like the seed that Jesus spoke of in the parable of the sower, like the seed that fell on the good soil. It fell on that good soil and it grew up and produced a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And thus the, the gospel produces fruit in the lives of believers. The Holy Spirit makes this word of truth to be productive in us. And this fruit takes the form of good works. The older theologians used to speak of this uh, under the heading of new obedience. And so sometimes if you read uh, some, some of the older confessions of faith or some of the older theologians, they'll speak of, of new obedience. And so, uh, for instance, uh, the Swiss theologian John Henry Heidegger put it this way, New obedience is exercised through good works. Good works of adults and of those who can produce them are as necessary as sanctification itself. For although they do not justify, they are nevertheless the fruits of justifying faith. They do not serve the interest of meriting salvation, but taking possession of it. They are a consequence of the adjoined antecedent, faith. And so... It is by faith alone that we are justified and saved, but true faith necessarily is followed by good works. This is produced in us by the gospel. This is the fruit of the spirits. Our works do not save us in the least, but they are the fruit and evidence of our salvation, or 
as we sometimes say, the proof is in the pudding. And uh, Jesus speaks in regard to, to fruit in Matthew 12, 33 to 35, where he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And so there's going to be works, either good works or bad, bad works, evil works. And if we are truly saved, good works must be flowing from us. The gospel produces this. The Spirit working in us by the Word of God produces this fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Or as Paul speaks in Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace to walk in good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. And so friends, let us all take care that, that we be good soil that we let this gospel produce fruit in us and that we do not let thorns grow up and choke the word and make it unfruitful. Jesus described those thorns in Mark 4:19 as the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. You have to be careful so as not to allow those things to choke the fruitfulness of the gospel in our lives because it is by our fruits that we will be known. Rather, instead, let us be those who hear the word, who believe it, who accept it, who respond so as to live the rest of our lives, not for sinful desires, but for the will of God. And as we do so, let's keep our eyes fixed again on that eternal reward. And let's give thanks to God that we have this hope and that all others in Christ also have this eternal hope of the reward laid up for us with God in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this hope which is laid up for us. Lord, we know that too often our eyes are fixed on the horizons of this world. And Father, we ask that you would help us, that we would not be so distracted from our eternal and heavenly calling and that reward which awaits us in heaven with you. Lord, we, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would build us up in Christ. And Lord, we ask that indeed the gospel would be fruitful in our lives, that we would throw off every, every weight and the sin which so easily entangles, and that we would run with perseverance, following after Christ, and that, uh, that our good works would, would come from us naturally, that we would delight in obeying you, that we would delight in doing good uh, to others for the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.